Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So we have quite an incredible you know, founder today joining us. I mean, someone that is able to literally foresee the future. I mean, he is the brains behind Siri. I mean, I'm sure that uh, you've probably used Siri a bunch of times this week already. Uh, and we're going to be talking about that moment where he received the phone call from Steve Jobs to get a deal done. Uh, and also, you know, some really other cool stuff that he has been up to. So without further ado, because we're going to be listening about all the good stuff that we like to hear, building, scaling, financing, exiting, all of the above. Let's welcome our guest today, Adam Chire. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So originally born outside, you know, born and raised outside of Boston. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Sure. I was born in Boston and lived in Sharon, Massachusetts, a small town. We had no stoplights growing up. So my childhood, basically, I was bored. My, I was only allowed one hour a week of screen time, television. So I had a lot of free time to use my imagination to come up with all sorts of ideas and visions and toys and whatever I could make with my hands. Uh, so I think that boredom really led to any creativity I had later in my career. Today, kids are so consumed by media beaming all the time that they don't have time to create and imagine on their own. Now, thinking about imagining on your own, I mean, obviously, in this case for you, you started to, to really imagine or let's say to, to, to get that interest towards how the human mind works, you know, and, and obviously, you know, this was the case, especially when you went into, into Brandeis University. But what really triggered that interest? How did you get, you know, so excited and passionate about how the human mind works? Yeah, that's a great question. I was graduating from high school. I knew I loved computer science. I had done some computers at my school, uh, but I was interested in many things, math, science, reading. So when I went and chose a college, I chose a liberal arts school, not just uh, an MIT or a very technical school. Uh, Brandeis is very well-rounded. And I said, if I'm going to major in something, to focus on something, What's the most interesting thing on this planet? And for me, it was the miracle of the human mind. Every one of us is just incredible. And I wanted to learn how we do the magic that we do. So I took classes in linguistics, psychology, sociology, neurobiology, computer science, artificial intelligence, all trying to understand the miracle of, of what we do without even thinking about it. Um, so I ended up with a Bachelor of Arts in Computer Science, a pretty rare combination in the tech field. So, so obviously, after getting the degree, you had to uh, enter the workforce. Eh? Like the good life of university doesn't last for as long as we would like. But, uh, but in your case, you ended up going to France. How would you say that perhaps having that global perspective now, you know, shaped who you are today? Because you were there for four years. Yeah, thank you. Great question. So. 
I'm going to share, in answering that question, share my greatest secret. This is the secret that has brought me everything, I think, in terms of success in life. And so there are times when you come to a chapter change moment. For me, I was graduating school. I'm like, what's next? But there are other moments in your life where this happens. Maybe you get married. Maybe you're not happy at your job anymore. I believe that life is short and it's a gift and it's our job to make the most of it. So how do you do that? What I do is when I'm coming to that chapter change moment, I focus on the core emotion and really shut out all the what society is saying you should do, what your parents or friends are saying. What am I feeling at that moment? And then I turn it into words, uh, which I call a verbally stated goal. And once I've distilled that, that truth, that core truth into words, I tell everyone I meet. And by telling them, this is what I'm going to do, even if I have no idea how I'm going to achieve it, it commits me to it. And then people start to help. So my very first verbally stated goal was, you know, I had different job offers. What do I choose? My grandfather was so worldly. He walked down the street. He spoke seven languages. He was learning an eighth language in his 90s. He could talk to anyone. And I wanted a bit of him in me. I had just grown up on the East Coast. I loved my life, but I'm like, I need a foreign perspective. And that became my first verbally stated goal. I managed to find a way by committing myself to it and getting people to help me. I went to work for the largest um, European computer company. It was a French company called Vol. They were working on expert systems. This was the 80s. Um, but that, that I, isolating what was really important to me at that time, what was the truth of what I, what I needed, um, I wanted to go and, and, and see the world and travel and, and learn a language and, and be able to look back my previous existence from a different perspective to, to really see how much I valued it. And one thing about perspective here, too, is, you know, one of, one of the patterns, you know, that at least I see on, in your career is the way that, uh, that you're able to envision things and to, to visualize things, to, to, to see what, how the future is going to unfold. I mean, for you, it was literally 1992. I mean, right now, everyone is talking about AI. You know, there's AI, you know, implemented on everything. You, everyone talking about chat GPT, you know, all of this stuff. But back in 1992, nobody knew what the hell AI was. I mean, how do you come to the idea of, hey, I think I, I have to put now my professional, you know, uh, nine to five, you know, perhaps aside, and it's my time to really do a master's in AI. Yeah, thank you. Um, so 1992, I, I left France. I loved my time in France. I learned a lot, but I really wanted to learn again, go back to, to school, uh, maybe see the West Coast. I'd never been to California before, really. Uh, so I went to UCLA. I did a master's in artificial intelligence. We were doing neural networks and machine learning and natural language processing, you know, but in a research context. Um, and, and for me, it was a, a chance to grow, to learn and continue my journey and exploration of how does the mind work? What can we do to simulate um, the amazing capabilities of what humans do every day? And um, yeah, I, I loved it. It was a fantastic opportunity. 
And it sounds like right after that, you know, it was one of your pivotal moments, you know, in, in your career. And that was joining SRI and being involved with the first version of Siri. So tell us about this experience. Yeah, thank you. So, um, again, there was a chapter change. I got my, my master's degree. And the question that was burning for me at the time is where could I stay for 10 years and not get bored? I thought I needed a career where I would, you know, my dad worked for one company his whole life. I loved my time in France, but I got bored. So SRI was the answer to that question. This was a research university where, or research institute, um, where everything interesting in computer science was happening. They had an artificial intelligence group where robots are roaming the halls. They had virtual reality, speech recognition. The most exciting technologies were there, and you could really create and imagine and play. And for me, it was incredible. So my first project at the time, now this was 1993, uh, everyone used laptop computers or desktop computers, and you had to load them up with software from floppy disks and CD-ROMs and things like that. And I said, someday there will be content and services around the world. Now, this was before the web, remember. And I said, you will need a way to both discover those services on other computers and to interact with them. So I never imagined hyperlinked documents as the way that people would interact with services elsewhere. I thought everyone would have an assistant that you could say, I want to know this, or I want to do this. And the assistant would understand what you did, take, break it into subtasks, route it to the right places around the world, recover the results, present them to you, learn, and help you get the job done. So really, um, my first conception of Siri, which I built as a prototype, was really my imagination of what the web would be. And then the next year, the web browser came out and the rest was history. But I carried along that vision saying, I still think it's a good idea. I still think it's a wonderful um, experience. And as we'll see later in the story, uh, I turned it into a company. I mean, you, you, you definitely did. I mean, there were um, uh, obviously you, you, you left SRI for just a, a tiny bit of time there. You know, you took like maybe like close to four years, you know, in, in, in between, you know, where you ended up landing back into SRI and you were taking VP of engineering jobs. I guess during those four years, when it comes to building products, what were like the three biggest things that you, you know, really learned about building successful products? Uh, I learned so much because even though I had been a software developer in France and a researcher at SRI, I really didn't know that much about how the commercial software development process worked. And at the end of 99, remember, there was the e-commerce boom, business to business e-commerce was taking off. I joined one of the top IPOs of 99, uh, top five IPOs called VerticalNet. Uh, it was rocketing to the, to the top. I was VP engineering. And so all of a sudden, I went from being a researcher sitting in my lab and playing with, you know, playing with Siri and other things like that to now having to deliver $200 million of software deliverables, managing teams, uh, trying to really understand the space of value chain and supply chain processes, all the tools that work with them. 
So if I were to say three lessons, one is um, how, to, how to really manage large distributed teams. So I had a team in Israel, a team in Texas, multiple teams in the U.S. Um, so really just kind of the engineering management process, um, trying to build a culture in this distributed world was, was a challenge. Uh, I would say learning the space for me, it was a, a huge piece, a very um, open and inventive time as people were trying to understand how the internet would change manufacturing and supply chain completely. So we came up with uh, some amazing technology and ideas. So really a lot of technology uh, learning and discovery. Um, and I guess I would say kind of life in a public, a, a recent public company. So I do say that there's a few ways to really make money um, in the Valley. One is you can be a founder of a startup that has a successful exit. And I'm sure you've had many such founders. And, and really, the rules are slightly different if you're a founder versus if you're an employee number one. It's better to be a founder if you can. So you can exit and get some real money. The other is if you can um, acquire an important role um, at a pre-IPO company, and when it goes IPO and now becomes liquid, you can actually you know, transact a fair amount of, of money. But newly formed, uh, first newly public companies, it's a huge transition for them. They now have analysts looking at every little detail. Every three months, you need to have new results. And so just kind of watching and learning um, how, that's, how that works was, was an eye-opener for me. So after four years of being out of SRI, what got you back? You know, when I was in the research world, I had this kind of puffed up view that, oh, we're doing cutting edge, next generation, state of the art. Commercial world just does commercial off the shelf. Like I had this, this view. But when I went to the commercial world, I realized there were all sorts of really smart people working on hard problems. And they, you don't get to choose which corners you cut. The customers are going to tell you what problems you really need to solve. So I kind of flipped. I'm like, oh, research is just playing with toys. And I had this dilemma and my verbally stated goal at that time, the question I wanted to answer when I left the commercial world to go back to SRI was really how do breakthroughs happen? And in the commercial world, especially in public companies, you're racing so quickly on incremental that a year or two years seems impossible to imagine, right? You're just driving so fast and incrementally. In the research world, you're thinking about big problems, but you don't have the customer value. And so I was trying to understand, how do I feel about research? And so I went back to SRI. I led the largest research project in government-funded history. Um, there were more than 400 people from 28 universities, so the top of the top, in AI, uh, Stanford, MIT, Carnegie Mellon, Berkeley, everyone, right? And we all reported into me as sort of VP engineering for this project. And I said, at the end of this project, a five-year, hundreds of millions of dollars project, I will have an opinion of what do I think about research? Are they really solving hard problems? Or are they just going around to conferences in Maui and 
and publishing papers. And it's all a ruse. It's kind of all a game. So that that's what I wanted to learn is what it's more about a value system of myself. What do I value um, in this world? Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So walk us through what happened then towards doing this spin out of what ended up becoming Siri. Yeah, thank you. Um, so. 2003, I joined SRI and I was doing this big project, but um, there was an important event that happened in 2004. So 2004 for me was the 10th anniversary of the web, the first time I saw a web browser. Remember, I started my Siri ideas in 93 and 94, Mosaic appeared. Um, so 2004, I said, it's been 10 years, the web has evolved, but there's more to go. And I, I got up and made a public presentation uh, called 10 Predictions for the Next 10 Years of the Web. And I sat and I, I really thought about these, these problems. I'm not going to go through all of these predictions now. I'll just pick a few. But on the web, and maybe I can share a link. In 2013, I stood on stage and said, some people just tell you the good ones that they did. I'm going to show you the presentation I did 10 years ago and score myself on how I did. Some were good, some were bad. So one of my predictions was that social networking would take off mainstream. Now in 2004, there was LinkedIn, which was business. Friendster had 13 million users and Orkut was kind of big in Brazil. But that was it. It was not clear social networking uh, was going to take off. But a few years later, there was a trigger moment. So I always talk about trends and triggers. MySpace became the number one most popular website in the US, a social network for music. And I said, oh, here it comes. Social networking is going to go. So I started uh, with Ben Rattray, a small company called change.org, the first social network for social change. 
Uh, today, it has, you know, 17 years later or something, it has more than half a billion members. So make a prediction. I think social networking will t- go mainstream. See the trigger moment, MySpace. Well, what does that mean? And start a company, right? That my, a second prediction that I made is that everything is going to move to the cloud. We didn't call it the cloud in 2004. But I realized there used to be data and and little laptops and desktop computers, things like email and files and all of this media, rather than getting Netflix, sending you a DVD in the mail, everything would move to the cloud. and, And now we're going to have a lot of compute power and a lot of data in one place. So I made a, a prediction that machine learning was going to take off because I believe machine learning at scale um, could, could really be important, but we never had that scale before. So in 2007, I started a company with several co-founders called Sentient, which was the first large-scale machine learning cloud platform. Uh, we reached about an 800 million valuation and then exited various ways. And my third prediction is that once everything moves to the cloud, there would be innovation at the interface because I thought that the companies who manage the data and the services are not necessarily the same companies to provide the best interface and access to that data. And for me, the trigger moment was the iPhone 2007. And when I saw that, now, I don't know if you remember, but many people thought the iPhone would fail. They said, oh, Only a phone company can make something as complex as a phone. Apple makes this little iPod music player. This is just a fact. I saw it because I had this prediction, this trend, that I knew an innovation was going to happen at the interface. When I saw the iPhone, I go, this is going to be huge. Two years from now, every handset manufacturer in telco will be desperate to compete with Apple because Apple has flipped the game. What are they going to need? What are the flaws of the iPhone? And I said, well, number one, the screen is small and it's hard to type. They didn't have a keyboard, a hard keyboard like the Blackberries did earlier on. The bandwidth is really slow. Like if you clicked in a web browser, it would take almost one minute over 3G to get the next page. Like if you're going to buy something, it's usually like 10 clicks maybe. That's 10 minutes. No one's going to buy anything on this phone. Now, what if I took that Siri idea that I've been working on here and there for for 15 years? If you did that, you could just ask, no typing. It didn't matter how small the screen was because you didn't need a lot of real estate. And you could just say something like, get me tickets to the concert tonight. And in one step, it says, confirm. And you say, yes, one round trip. So I, I thought Siri would be exactly the technology that handset manufacturers and telcos would would be desperate to have to compete with Apple. And of course, the irony is that Steve Jobs saw it first, but uh, that's a different story. So that gives a let my one of my lessons for entrepreneurs. I say there were no social networks for social change before change.org, right? I hit the timing just right. There were no large-scale machine learning platforms before Sentient. There were a lot after. There were no voice assistants for the masses before Siri. There were many after. And if I had started those companies any time earlier, they would have failed. 
anytime later. So for me, timing is one of the most important things you can do. Timing of when should you take it commercially to market? And I use this, this process of trends and triggers. Predict the future and then look for the confirming moment when you're like, okay, here it comes. My, my prediction is right. And I know what this event means and what the world will be like in two years. Time to start a company to build for that moment. Wow. Now, one of the things that, um, that happened after you, know, you guys uh, launched the uh, Syria and you were, you were in it, you receive a phone call from uh, Steve Jobs. So yeah. tell, tell us about this. Yeah, that was crazy. A magic moment. So we were a small startup, about 22 people. Uh, we had worked for two years and we launched a free app in the app store called Siri. And it was amazing. I, lo I love it. Actually, if you talk to Steve Wozniak today, the other Apple co-founder, and you ask him, and a huge Apple fanboy, What's your favorite app of all time? He'll say Siri, but not the Siri that's embedded in the phones, the original app that was in the app store. It did so many more things. And that, as an entrepreneur, I love that version because we put so much heart and soul into that. So uh, we launch. The, the reviews are great. People are tweeting. Um, and one day, uh, our CEO on his iPhone gets a call, and he can see the caller ID. It says, Apple Cupertino. And at the time, you had to swipe to answer. And if you remember back then, you'd swipe and it wouldn't always pick up. So we're like, Cupertino, swipe, 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 swipe. Not answering. Seven swipes. Finally, it picks up. We hear a voice on speaker. Hey, it's Steve. What you doing? Want to come over to my house tomorrow? And we're like, Steve Jobs is calling us. How, how'd you get this number? And one thing uh, many people don't know, one of the meanings of Siri is secret in Swahili. And we, I always start my companies as like a stealth company. And we had the ninja logo and the slogan, slogan, stay low, move fast. And like we really played it up for the culture. But we had no website, no sign on our door. And yet Steve Jobs is calling us unannounced. He says, come over to my house. Um, we went. The next day, we talked for maybe three hours about technology, artificial intelligence, where the future was going. Um, he said he wanted to buy our company. And we said, thank you. Not interested. Goodbye. And we left. And we had just raised a B round. We had a, signed a deal that we were going to launch with one of those major telcos. And we were excited about the future. But if you know Steve, you know he was a persistent man, and he called us 30 days in a row. And at the end, um, he convinced us we could change the world more with Apple than without. And so, um, yeah, a little bit of negotiation, and we ended up uh, selling our company to Apple. And how was, how was it like, you know, negotiating with someone like Steve Jobs? Yeah, I, let me give you this quick story on how, what I think defines Steve. Uh, first of all, when I met him that first day, you could tell there was a fire to succeed in him. And I was going, man, he's a billionaire. He's already reinvented so many fields, computers with the Mac and Pixar, you know, reinvented movies and the App Store and the iPhone mobile. You could, you'd think he would be a little bit chill. There's nothing chill about Steve Jobs. And he wanted to win and he wanted to get it right as opposed to being right. 
And this is really important for CEOs and leaders on your podcast. Um, you know, we were having a discussion and then he goes, Adam, do you think Apple should buy, and I'm not going to name which company, but he named a company. I said, no, I don't think so. It's like, what, why, why, why? We started going at it. It was like back and forth and it was getting animated and heated. And I learned that, um, you know, I, I was able to defend the position. And at the end, he said, hmm, interesting. I'm going to think about that. Thank you. And that kind of defined every interaction I had with Steve Jobs, negotiation and others. He, he wanted to succeed. He was desperate to succeed. He was always looking for a contrarian opinion. He didn't want yes men around him. He wanted people with different views. Now, if you couldn't defend your position with logic and data, he would knock you aside. Like, don't waste my time. That, that's idiotic. But if you could, um, he was open to hearing a different perspective. And many times, if, um, you know, he, he said, Adam, I've heard you. We're not going to do it your way this time, but here's why. And other, you know, and other times he said, okay, we're going to do it your way this time. So I, I love my interactions with Steve. Uh, I, I thought it was so important that he always listened, always thought about the perspective, and then he made a decision. And I was, I was fine with the process, even if I did not always agree with the decision. And hey, what a what a remarkable outcome eh, to uh, to be able to get your company acquired by Apple and be able to um, spend time with someone like Steve Jobs. And and it was rumored to be a two hundred million dollar deal. So wow, unbelievable. Now. You stayed there for quite a little bit, you know, just a couple of years. And as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. And then you decided to uh, get going with Bibi Labs. So why did you think that the problem that you were solving with Bibi Labs was meaningful enough for you to, uh, to, to go at it again? Yeah, thank you. Um, so, so, yeah, I was very happy with the transaction. Apple, I think, was super happy with the transaction because... They made back the entire purchase price and more in 24 hours of pre-sales. And uh, selling the iPhone 4S, which was literally the iPhone 4 plus Siri. So it was just, it was just Siri. Selling Siri, Apple added over $300 billion to their market cap in under 12 years. They passed Exxon to become the number one most valuable company of all time, um, and broke every profit margin record, et cetera. So I was happy with the transaction. I think Apple was also very happy. Well, I mean, if you think about it too, I mean, it's literally over 500 million people are using Siri on a daily basis. How Did you ever think that it would go to that crazy scale? Of course I did. I'm an entrepreneur, so I always, <laughs> I always say, Everything I aim for, I try to impact a billion people. And that's my defining goal. And if I can't, I can't see it impacting a billion people, uh, it's maybe not worth doing. So Siri has been on two and a half billion devices. Change.org, we have more than half a billion people. Uh, Viv Labs, which sold to Samsung, is on more, almost uh, half a billion devices. Um, and Sentient did some really fundamental, important work as well. So I always, and machine learning has clearly touched more than a billion people, and we were pioneers in that space. So yeah, I, I, I dream big, right? And then maybe I don't always reach 
my goal. But sometimes if you dream really big and you get 50% there or 70% there, it's, it's still impressive. So you asked about Viv Labs and why did I leave Apple? So today is the 12th birthday of our launch of Siri. October 4th, 2011 was the launch of Siri and Steve Jobs died the very next day, October 5th. Um, and his admin wrote to me and said he was clinging to life to see the launch of Siri. It meant so much to him. It was really the last gift. And, and you can think of AI, uh, of Siri as really starting the artificial intelligence revolution that's so prevalent now. In the 2000s, in the 90s, no one used the words artificial intelligence, but Steve did. And after that, one after another, there were so many AI innovations that started, but Siri was the first and he saw it first. After he died, there was a lot of change in the organization. For me, the vision was always going back 30 years today, um, to my first version of Siri, it was about opening it to the ecosystem. I imagine that just like the iPhone came out with 10 great apps and then the App Store emerged, Siri would come out with 15 great functions built by Apple, but then it had to open it up. Steve knew that and agreed to it, but after he passed, I couldn't get that vision to continue. And I knew that had to be the next step for an assistant. So when I found I couldn't pursue that at Apple, I left and started Viv Labs to do that, to do the, the next generation of, of Siri. Um, so that's, I really cared about that vision, that open, developer-friendly ecosystem that scales. Um, and no one has fully achieved that yet. I think for entrepreneurs wondering what to do in AI next, I tell you, go look at Viv Labs. Uh, download, we we had a set of tools, BixbyDevelopers.com. Go there and, and see some of the ideas that we had and modernize them in this age of generative AI, chat, GPT, et cetera. That is a, a company waiting to, to develop right now is my prediction. So it sounds like timing is everything here. So with Viv Labs, I mean, it sounds like uh, you were onto something big. I mean, Talking about timing here, why did you decide to sell the company to Samsung? Well, Samsung had a billion device footprint. <laughs> and number two, they weren't doing a lot in AI and speech and voice. And I thought if I went to a company, so I wanted the distribution, but if I went to a Google or a Microsoft, you know, they would have 10, 20 competing groups and I didn't want to fight politics. I wanted to find one company that said, we believe in this vision of an open voice assistant. We will put it on every device, every phone, every TV, every that they had acquired uh, uh, Harman, which was the number one car components company. So in cars for speakers, et cetera. I, I thought we could get massive distribution quickly and that would be the seed um, to launch this vision. And I got commitment that they would open up our technology, not just on Samsung devices, but to any device. I really wanted this assistant to be the next web, as important as mobile, as important as the web itself. Everyone should have a voice assistant, every business, every, you know, you have a web website, you have an app, of course, you'll need a voice interface because there are a billion hours spent uh, commuting in cars. There are many moments when 
when you can't use a phone or you, you know you can't use your hands or your eyes, you just need to use voice. So I thought that could be a huge business for Samsung. And uh, that transaction rumored to be around 215 uh, plus. So unbelievable. You know, again, another exit. Now, for you, Adam, what's obviously you are, you know, into some secret stuff, you know, right now and, and also advising other companies. What's what's next? What can people expect to perhaps be the next chapter for Adam? You'll see, but I'll, I'll give a few hints. As I mentioned, I always start my projects in stealth mode. Siri means secret in Swahili. Um, the world is about to be faced with global complex issues, right? We've got climate change, hunger, poverty, war, um, pollution, water issues. There are huge issues. AI alone is not going to solve these problems. We have to solve these problems. And today the world is divisive. We can't even agree in this country whether the last elections were fair or not. It, it's, we need to find ways to come together and to work together to solve the problems or we will not survive as a species. I mean, I believe, and it's not just one problem, cancer. This, it's we need to get better at problem solving is my belief. And the way to do that, we need better tools that bring us together, not divide us. Uh, we need, of course, AI needs to play a role uh, in this world, but only as a way to augment our own intellect. We need to improve the collective intellect of, of the planet, of our country, of our, you know, of our businesses, of our families. We need to come together to get smarter um, and, and hopefully, uh, we can make progress. And so I'm, tr I'm going to try to do something in that area because someone needs to try and we all need to try. So hopefully, uh, hopefully I, or one of your entrepreneurs out there can, can help us get through this next important phase. Amazing. Well, Adam, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say, hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, sure. I have a website, adam.chire. Dot com. You can find me there, contact info. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, you know, I do a little bit on X or Twitter, but I don't post very much. I'm too busy working. But uh, I love yeah. It. I love it. Well, hey, Adam, it has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Okay. Thank you, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.